Well, I want to get straight into our main passage for this morning, which is in 2 Samuel 24. 2 Samuel 24. And I personally love this story because it is one of the most unusual stories that we find in the Bible. I really like strange stories that really cause you to ask a number of questions. You'll be reading through this and every now and then just be scratching your head wondering, where is this going? What's happening? But those questions lead to very rewarding answers. I love it when the Bible really gets you to think uh, through things very intentionally because it always has beautiful answers to give us. So 2 Samuel 24, and we're looking at this because this story is going to, uh, it's an Old Testament type or shadow that's pointing us forward to what Jesus would later do in the New Testament under the New Covenant. So as we're going through this, look throughout the story to see where we can see things pointing towards Jesus to come. This is during the reign of King David, one of the greatest kings uh, in the monarchy of both Judah and Israel. And we'll read the first few verses together here to get a bit of a setting of this story. It's the last story that's told in 2 Samuel. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Job, the commander of the army who was with them, now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and count the people that I may know the number of the people. Job said to the king, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are. And may the eyes of my Lord, the king, see it. But why does my Lord, the king, desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. So a very brief summary is David wants to take a census of his kingdom. Joab says, why do you want to do this? This is a bad idea. And David kind of throws his weight around and says, you are going to do this, Joab. He, he forces Joab and the army to do this census. Now, verse 1 already is intriguing because it says, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. The Israelite people were at this stage being rebellious to God. And so God's anger is rightfully aroused against them. And it's important to know because later the people of Israel are going to suffer because of this census. And sometimes we read the story and we think, oh, that's so unfair that the Israelites get caught in the crosshairs of this. But notice in the very first verse, we're told God is angry with Israel. They are being rebellious towards him. So God is going to use David as a, as a means of chastening or chastising the people of Israel. He's going to use David to bring judgment upon them. And the exact way God is going to do this is actually made clearer when we read how another person tells this same story. So you can read this story in 2 Samuel 24, but you can also read it in 1 Chronicles 21. So we won't be looking in there, but I advise you, have a look through both versions of the story. There's little similarities and differences that are very interesting. But we're just going to stay in 2 Samuel 24. Apart from this verse, the way that the author of Chronicles starts his story is he says now satan stood up against israel and moved david to number israel 
Now, I did say that this will clear things up for us, but you might be thinking, well, this makes things more complex. Chronicles says Satan aroused David, but Samuel says God moved David against Israel. So which is it? The answer is both. But how is it that both God and Satan can be said to have claimed responsibility for this? Well, God wants to chasten Israel for their rebellion. And he's going to use David to do that. So God removes his spiritual protection from David, allowing Satan to come in and to tempt him. Allow Satan to tempt uh, the pride and the selfish ambitions of David. David, he wants to take this census to know his military might. He wants to look at both how he's amassed a great kingdom in the past, but he also wants to know uh, his military might so that he can see How can I make my kingdom bigger in the future as well? He's thinking very selfishly and pridefully. So God removes that protection from David, allowing Satan to come in and intentionally tempt David with these uh, thoughts that he is having. And you wonder, well, why would Satan want to tempt David? Why does Satan, why is he going to take this opportunity uh, to tempt David? Well, it's because Satan knew that this census that David had in his heart, this census census would bring disaster, death, destruction to the nation of Israel. And Satan, throughout the Bible, he's always looking for opportunities to destroy the people of God. His hope was to destroy God's promised nation, Israel, and this census he knew would result in that. But let's keep in mind that Satan also couldn't see God's full plan. God did want to chasten Israel, but he also had something bigger in mind that we're going to see as the story unfurls. So the next logical question is, well, why is it that this census would bring disaster and destruction and ruin? Why is it that taking a census is going to lead to this? Well, as we said, notice David, when he sends out Joab, he says, I want you to count all of the the warriors. I want you to count up my military. So David's not taking the census for pure reasons. He's doing it out of his own pride and selfish ambition. And this is a regular theme with God. He doesn't want the people to rely on human effort. He wants them to rely on him. Think about the story of Gideon. Gideon has thousands of soldiers, but God whittles down his army to 300. And he says to Gideon, the reason is I want the people to know that I was the one who saved them. It wasn't the military might of the nation. And God's the same. He wants us to put his trust in him rather than in human effort. So God actually had made rules for the Israelites as to how they were to take a census. He gave it to them right in the book of Exodus. Here's how he told them, if you're going to take a census, this is what must be done. Uh, He says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. Mm. So it was a very specific way a census was to be done. If you had to count up the people, every person had to give uh, a ransom for himself to the Lord. And it specifies it's a certain amount of shekels of silver. So they had to give some silver over. And if they did that, they would avoid God sending a plague into the camp or their territory. 
So to not do so clearly results in a plague coming about. And it's interesting, the money that was collected, we read, you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. So they'd collect all the money from everyone that uh, was counted in the census. And then that money was taken and was supposed to be given to the tabernacle. And notice the words that are being used here. You have to pay a ransom money. You have to make atonement. This money, this payment makes atonement here. But nowhere in the story of David's census are we told that David takes this ransom money. We're not told that uh, he does it the way that God instructed in Exodus 30 here, how a census was supposed to be taken. And notice Joab, he really tries to tell David this is a bad idea. Now, Joab is not a good character in the Bible. He's a manipulator. He's a murderer. He's got almost no ethics. He's ruthless. But even Joab knows that this is a bad idea. That really goes to show how blinded David was by his own pride, isn't it? when Joab, of all people, has to give David moral counsel. So it seems everyone in this story remembers taking a census and not doing it properly the way God instructed is a bad idea. Joab knows it. God knows it. Even Satan knows it. He knows it's going to result in a plague hitting the people. David seems to be the only one in the story who forgets the fact about this rule. And he's being very arrogant and prideful towards God, as though he doesn't have to worry about keeping to God's rules here. Well, let's continue reading about how the census takes place. So he compels Joab. And in verse 5, it says, So Joab and his men, they crossed over the Jordan and camped in Aroah on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad and toward Jazir. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tethim Hodshai, They came to Dan Jan and around to Sidon. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And then they went out to the south Judah as far as Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. So a lot of these place names we read, and they're not familiar to us. So I just want to show you a brief little map of where they went around for their census. That's a bit difficult to see, so I've got this other one. So it says they went from Dan to Beersheba. They went all the way along here. You'll notice in this map here, there's a little bit more of Israel to count here. But it looks like Job and his men didn't want to go through the wilderness of Zin. Uh, It looks like they didn't want to make the trek to count um, what I imagine was not as densely populated as the rest of Jerusalem. So they go all the way from the top here to Dan, all the way down to Beersheba. Uh, And the second map is a a close-up of that. An interesting detail is that uh, in, in 1 Chronicles we're told, Joab refuses to count the people of the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin, I've approximated, is this little circle here. So that includes Gibeon, Jericho, and Jerusalem. Bethlehem was just outside um, in the area of Judah. So Joab actually didn't count this little area in Benjamin. And the reason we're given in Chronicles is he says, the census was so detestable to him 
that he refused to count the tribe of Benjamin. I'm not sure why he chose only the tribe of Benjamin. That'd be something to look into. And the Levites. He refused to count the Levites as well. But isn't that interesting, that detail? Even Joab knows this is terrible. It's detestable to him to do this on behalf of David. And so we could say he does a bit of a half job. He doesn't do a full job of the census. But one other thing to notice is uh, it says the census takes nine months and 20 days. So let's round it up. Let's say it's just shy of 10 months. David had 10 months to realize the errors of his ways, didn't he? 10 months to realize this is not how God wanted a census to be done. Not only that, but this was not the attitude God wanted for the leader of Israel to have. I want to count my military might. You know, he wasn't trusting in God. God gave David 10 months, just shy of 10 months, to repent. But he was stubborn for all that time. That's nearly a year. Almost a year, David was in direct rebellion against God. And I think maybe David fell into a trap that many people do, which is they do the wrong thing and they're waiting for God to do something, but it doesn't happen. And they think, well, God mustn't care or God's asleep or whatever. They come up with all sorts of excuses for why what they're doing mustn't be an issue. Not realizing that God is giving them time to repent. God does, that action is worthy of judgment, but God's holding it back allowing that person time to repent. David is given nine months and 20 days to realize this census is a bad idea. Nine months to say, Joab, bring the armies back home. Let's call this off. But instead, he follows through to the end. Let's continue reading verse 10. David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. It's it's sad, isn't it, reading that? David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. Wouldn't it be much nicer to read before he finished than after he had counted? I mean, it's good that his heart condemns him in the end, but in a sense... As we'll see, it's a little bit too little too late. He's gone through with this act of rebellion against God. Verse 11, now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. This is one of those details in a story that I love. To my knowledge... This is the only time in the Bible where God gives a person a choice for which way they want to be punished. I may, there may be another example, but to my knowledge, this is the only one where God says, all right, I'm giving you a choice of three. Which do you want to take? Let's have a look at what these three choices are. So Gad came to David and told him and said, now some, uh, some Bibles will have seven or three years, so shall seven or some say three years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while I pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. So David's given these three options, famine, uh, being pursued by enemies or a plague in the land. Now, I wonder if you were the king, you know, if you were a leader of a nation, just think to yourself, which of these three options would you pick 
famine in the land for years, being on the run for months, or three days with a plague going through your land. And remember, in Exodus 30, it said, if the census is not taken properly, a plague will come through the land. God seems to be alluding to this passage in Exodus 30 here. Well, David decides, he's made his decision. It says in verse 14, David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hands of man. David decides that he'd rather suffer a plague for three days in the hand of God than be chased by enemies that have to suffer at the hands of humans. And he says the reason is God is merciful. He's great in his mercies. What a beautiful thing for David to say in such a bleak circumstance, isn't it? He's, David is in the middle of acknowledging his wrongness before God. He's having to evaluate what punishment his people are going to suffer as a result of both his and the people's rebellion. And he says, if we have to pick a punishment, I want to be in the hands of God because his mercies are great. That's a beautiful thing for David to say. And David's right. David, I think, picks the right option. In verse 15, it says, So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time, from Dan to Beersheba. So that's the area in which the census was taken. From Dan to Beersheba, 20,000 men of the people died. That's no small number. 70,000, my apologies. 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it is enough, restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruana the Jebusite. So David was right. He says, I'm going to pick the, the three days of plague with the Lord because God is merciful. He'll give us mercy. And David is right. The angel uh, is there presiding over this judgment. 70,000 men die, but then God tells the angel to relent from this destruction, to restrain his hand. God says, that's enough. That's enough. No more is required. Verse 17, David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people, and he said, surely I have sinned, and I have done wickedly, but these sheep... Referring to the people of Israel. What have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. Here we're beginning to see not the David who said, I want to take a census to puff up my own pride. Here we begin to see the David who we are told is a man after God's own heart. This is a good leader. This is someone who's putting others before himself. And really what we're seeing here is that David he is in a sense interceding on behalf of his nation. He comes before God, he stands before God and says, "Please don't take it out on my people, let the punishment fall onto me. I want the punishment to come onto me rather than onto my people." He asks he, he is acting as an intercessor between Israel and God, pleading on their behalf. And of course, this is a, a picture of what Jesus 
does for us as well. Jesus stands in the heavenly sanctuary. He goes before God the Father, pleads our case on our behalf. He asks the Father to declare us as legally innocent, to spare us from the penalty of our sin and rebellion against him. Jesus stands between us and God so that rather than God seeing our sin, he only sees the righteousness of Christ. Jesus is able to reunite us, reconcile us to God and put us in a right relationship with him. But these parallels don't just stop there. Not only does David intercede on behalf of the people, but he also, he also asks that he be a substitute. He says, rather than taking the penalty of this sin on the people, put it on me instead. I want to take the penalty for the sin and rebellion of these people. And so he volunteers to be a substitute. And again, this points exactly to what Jesus would one day do. Now, Jesus is a better David in that David is also having to atone for his own sin, something which Jesus never had to do. But that attitude, that willingness, is exactly what Jesus would later do. Let me be the substitute. Let me take the penalty so that my people don't have to. Notice as well, David says he refers to his people as his sheep. And Jesus, of course, is the ultimate shepherd, and we are his sheep. David says, don't take it out on them. Let your hand be against me. And Jesus does the same. He pleads to the Father, let not your hand be against them, but against me. Jesus was wounded and he suffered the penalty of death so that we don't have to, as a substitute for us and for our sin. So how does the story conclude? David says, uh, I, want, I, want to be, uh, I want to take the punishment myself. So we see David as an intercessor for the people. We see David offering himself as a substitute. What does David say? Well, let's read in verse 18. Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arowana the Jebusite. So David did according to the word of God, and he went up as the Lord commanded him. Now Arowana looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Arowana went and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Arowana said, why has my lord the king come to the servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Arowana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for a burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yoke of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Arowana has given to you, the king. And Arowana said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you forever. So notice David is continuing this intercessory role. God now says to him, David, in order to make peace between myself and the people, you need to go and give a sacrifice on an altar. Now, this is very unusual because that's the function of a priest. Kings don't give sacrifices. But here God says, you need to go purchase this threshing floor, build an altar, and give a sacrifice. And so now we're even seeing glimpses of David 
being a type of priest. He's doing priestly things, offering a sacrifice to appease or to, uh, to get rid of the problem of the sin of the people. That was the function of the priest. And yet here, David seems to be doing this. So Arowana, uh, he comes and he says, just take what I have. I've got oxen here. I've got wood. Just take it. It's yours. But notice what David says in these last few verses. Then the king said to Arowana, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt sacrifices and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. Isn't it interesting? Arowana, he says, you're the king. Just take my stuff. Take the threshing floor. Take the oxen. Take the wood. It's free on the house. And David refuses this offer. He says, I will not offer burnt sacrifices to the Lord my God, which have cost me nothing. He says, I will surely buy it from you for a price. I think David understood here that a price had to be paid for the salvation of the people. Now, remember, in order for this whole plague business to have been avoided, a shekel had to be asked from all the people counted. So a price had to be paid to avoid the plague. David knows then that in order to get rid of the plague, he can't do it for free, essentially. That price must be paid. Atonement has to be made. And the same is true for how God had to look at the plan of salvation. God wanted to redeem humanity to himself, to rescue us from sin. But it couldn't be done without a cost being paid. A sacrifice had to be made in order to rescue us. And Jesus volunteered himself. For that, When we look at the cross, the cross is where the ransom for our sin was paid. An atonement for our sin and iniquity was made. God had to pay the highest price possible in order to redeem us. The life of his only son, Jesus. That was the price that had to be paid. And just as David recognizes, this wasn't something that could be done easily for free. The price had to be paid, atonement made, and that ransom paid. And Jesus is the one who pays that ransom. Well, just to conclude this story, remember, Satan wanted to use this opportunity to destroy Israel. He knew a plague would come based on the law in Exodus 30. So Satan's hoping this plague's going to wipe out all of the God's promised covenant people. That's his plan. But remember, I also said God had... Another plan. So his initial plan was to rebuke and chasten Israel. But there was a plan behind that plan as well. And we figure it out when we read uh, the version in First Chronicles. So in Samuel here, this is the end of the book. This is where the story finishes. But when the author of First Chronicles decides to retell the story, he, uh, he finishes much the same way. David makes an altar. But then the very next story that happens is David says, on this place, I am going to build the temple of God. And it's this event, this story, which leads David to deciding, 
a temple has to be built for God, and it's going to be built right here on this threshing floor, which I have bought. Here are just three uh, incredible things that I noticed for God's ultimate plan. David's census. Remember, what was the money for the census supposed to go to? The tabernacle. David pays... Uh, he pays a ransom for the people. He makes atonement for the people. And that money, rather than going to the tabernacle, goes towards building a better temple. He purchases the foundation for which the temple will one day be bought. So the census money did end up going towards the tabernacle or the temple. Another second thing, part of God's ultimate plan here. The location of the temple or the location where David purchased the threshing field, we read later, is on Mount Moriah. And Mount Moriah was the place where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. Yet another picture of God giving up his only son for the sins of, uh, of the world. And then a substitute being found for Isaac. So God was very precise in picking this as the place where the temple would be built. Because it points back to another image of what Jesus would do. But then it also points forward because ultimately we know everything in the temple points forward to Jesus, points forward to him being the ultimate priestly intercessor, the ultimate substitute, and ultimate ransom payer. So everywhere we look in the story, God is pointing forward to what Jesus would do for you and for me. Satan had his plan, but God had in mind that from this event, David would purchase the foundation for where the temple would one day be built, the temple which pointed forward to Jesus and his ultimate sacrifice. As we partake in the ordinances of communion, we're, we're doing much the same of what God did in his big plan here. We're looking both backwards, looking at the present, and looking forwards as well. We look back at what Christ has done. We look at what Christ is doing in us now and in our world. And we also look forward to what he is going to do in the future. We remember what Jesus has done for us at the cross and the blood he shed to pay the ransom for our sins. We reflect on what Jesus is doing for us presently, interceding for us as a high priest on our behalf, who brings not the blood of goats and bulls, but his own blood as an atonement for us. And we look forward to the ultimate fulfillment of all these promises when Jesus, like David, returns as a triumphant king. If I can make a brief appeal to you today, it would be, Are we living in such a way that reflects this reality that we have been purchased for a price by God? When people look at your life, can they see Jesus? Can they tell there's something different about you that you have been purchased by God? Jesus has paid the ransom for you so that you can be a child of God. My appeal to you today is let us live as those whose ransom has been paid by our great King, Jesus.